All right, we're picking back up in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll be reading this morning uh, verses 38 through 42. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word with you, go ahead and turn with me there. Let's read together. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us what we need to know about you, what we need to know about ourselves and each other. And God, I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning, Lord, so that your message would be made clear for your people, for their good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our tendency is that if someone insults or injures us, we hit back. And we don't just hit back, we hit back harder, don't we? That's, that's what we do. It's been that way since the beginning. You can go all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 4. After Cain killed Abel and God sends him away, Cain's afraid for his life. He's afraid that somebody's going to retaliate against him, gonna, somebody's going to find him somewhere and, uh, and get even for him having killed Abel. And God assures him that if anyone did do that, if anyone hunted him down and killed him, God would bring vengeance upon that man sevenfold. Now, God has a right to, to vengeance in whatever measure he chooses. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's God and we are not. But what's interesting is that Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, becomes a violent man who brags about his violence. He brags about killing a man who struck him. A man wounded him and he didn't just wound him back, he murdered him. He hit back harder. He had to show everyone who was boss and he had the audacity to claim, this is a quote from him from Genesis 4, 24. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, right? That's what God said. If God's revenge for Cain is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. The audacity. That's not just Lamech, by the way. That's you and me. You know, maybe not to the extent of murder, but we're really only arguing over degrees, The truth is, when someone has cheated us or wounded us, our tendency is this tendency to hit back and to hit back harder. That's what we want to do. God knows this. That's why he made laws to protect us from each other and from ourselves. The purpose of the laws about this eye for eye and tooth for tooth thing was to control excess. They weren't about getting revenge. They were about preventing revenge. That's why these laws were given. The idea of the law wasn't that an eye be given for an eye in every instance. It wasn't insisting that there be an eye for an eye in every case. It was describing the extent of just retribution, you see? It's the restorative principle we've been talking about as we've kind of brought out God's law a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the restorative principle where it's about setting things right. It's about reconciliation, restoration, about setting things right, not about getting our pound of flesh, 
which is what they were doing. If things could be set right without taking an eye, even better, right? Because we're talking about love your neighbor stuff here. The point is this, it was a boundary. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth was a boundary. You can go this far and no farther. Judges would see to it in a, in, in a court that if an eye was taken, only an eye would be given and no more. To prevent men from taking the law into their own hands and defining justice for themselves, justice for themselves, this was how things were set up. But what the Pharisees did is they threw all this out the window. They ignored the fact that this was supposed to take place in the context of a court of law, that this was a judicial process. And what they did is they reduced it all down to personal application. They, they turned it into me and you stuff, right? So, so if, if, if Thomas did something I didn't like, I'd just go after him and, and we'd settle it out in the street somewhere, right? And they considered it a right and a duty to carry this out. It was a right and a duty to carry out eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It was something that they did insist on rather than viewing it as the restraining measure it was intended to be. Now, with that little bit of background on the law uh, that Jesus is reorienting people to here, and remember, that is what he's doing. He's reorienting them to the law. He's not modifying the law. God's law doesn't need modifying. We need modifying. Remember, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say, he's not changing the law. He's stripping away what they've been told by the law, what they've been told about it. So again, with that little background on what Jesus is addressing here, let's keep in mind what we've been keeping in mind as we've gone along so far. What Jesus is mainly addressing in all of these verses is the heart. That's what he's doing. He's getting to the bottom of everything. He's getting to the heart of the matter. So from all that, here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Have a right view of yourself. Have a right view of yourself. That's different than the advice we get from the world, isn't it? The world says, have a positive view of yourself. No, no concern for accuracy, right? Just pump yourself up. Love yourself more. You're awesome. You're worth it. You're, you're something special. You're so powerful and you're destined for greatness. That's what the world tells you. Problem is, everyone is thinking the same thing. And because we do, our specialness and our uniqueness and our, our entitlements are just going to smash into each other and collide and make a mess. Rights are going to get stepped on. Feelings are going to be hurt. So what's the solution? Just love ourselves more and follow our hearts. Don't think so. You do that, you probably get more of the same, right? And so Jesus tells us how to deal with people offending us and cheating us and wronging us. Have a right view of yourself. And here's the right view of you. You have an untamed heart. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're in Christ, it is being tamed. And instead of merely arguing over the rightness of this or the wrong that is done to you, 
because of the, the faith that you have been given, because of the, the grace that you have received, because of the eyes of faith that you can view others in, you can consider first who it is that you belong to, and you can let that drive your view of yourself and your personal relationships with others. He who is forgiven much loves much, right? He who is forgiven much loves much. Well, how much have you been forgiven? Don't forget where we started in this series. Remember, we started in the Beatitudes. And, and what, was the, what was the first one we saw there? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That poverty of spirit that reminds us that we have nothing. We are nothing. And we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And yet... Because God the Father freely chose to love us and to send his Son to redeem us, and the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to us and gives us a new heart that beats for him, we are now called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's who we are. We went from having nothing to having everything in Christ Jesus. We went from being nothing to being heirs with Christ. We went from deserving wrath to receiving grace. That's who we are. Have a right view of yourself and you won't be offended so easily. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we live as though that were true? Because it is. And if we hold on to that, if we have a right view of ourselves, we would not be so defensive. We wouldn't take things so personally. We wouldn't be so quick to say things like, mine! <laughs> yeah. Or, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? Or, you're going to pay for that. We wouldn't be so insecure. Our insecurities, y'all, all of them, come from unbelief. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to see ourselves as we are so that we can know the security our redemption affords us. The scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't know the security that comes with being redeemed by God. They were called the people of God. They went to church and gave money and read their Bibles, just like all good and decent conservative straight-ticket Republican voting Southerners do. But their unbelief hardened their hearts to the truth of God's word made flesh and the spirit of the law that they claimed to be keeping. And so what they had was an empty religion that kept them sealed off from God and sealed off from each other. Keep in mind, our relationship with God was not the only thing that was lost in the garden. We lost relationship with one another. You know, that's why at King's Church, sort of our motto is experience God, find community, live on purpose, because that's what we lost in the garden, and that is what has been restored by Jesus through his church. We lost relationship with God 
relationship with others, and our sense of our true purpose. And that has been restored to those of us who are in Christ. So the last thing you should see Christians doing is fighting with each other and dragging each other into court for every little thing to claim their rights. Insecurity comes from unbelief. Jesus gets practical here in these verses. Jesus' teaching is always practical. He doesn't command things that are impossible for us. He doesn't use hyperbole when he gives commands. He commands what he expects us to employ in our daily lives and dealings with others. What's in view here, though, okay, is not limited to these specific situations. It's, you know, it's not, there's more included here. There's principles we can take from this. What's, what's primarily in view is the self, our views of ourselves, and our attitudes toward ourselves. All right? Help us to see that. What Jesus has said is that if we are to be like him, we are to be like him. And if we are to be like him, we're supposed to die to self. So being quick to defend our rights comes into conflict with that, doesn't it? That's what we're supposed to examine ourselves and find out and see. Are we standing on our rights and immediately becoming defensive when someone does us wrong? Is that our first inclination? That's what Jesus is after, our hearts. So verse 39, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Slap on the right cheek. What we're looking at here is a right-handed culture. We've talked about that before in other sermons. Everything's about the right hand, okay? A right-handed culture and backhanded insults. If I hit you with my right hand on your right cheek, I've backhanded you. If I really wanted to injure you, though, I'd ball up my fist like this, wouldn't I? And I'd rear back, and I'd wallop you on your left cheek with my right hand. What? Isn't that right? And then that would not be the place to turn the other cheek. Okay? Someone backhanding you is the place to turn the other cheek. It's a terrible insult, but that's all it was. It wasn't a violent crime, so we don't react to it as though it were a violent crime and then just punch their lights out. I've called this mini-series in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Untamed Hearts, and perhaps you think I'm overusing that. That's fine, but let me just point it out to you again. Let's say someone just hauls off and right across your face. Guys, what's your first inclination? How much self-control do you have in that moment? How long would it take for the adrenaline and the rage to clear your system before you finally stopped beating the guy into the pulp and got off of him. That's your inclination. That's the evidence of your untamed heart. Jesus says, turn the other cheek in that instance. Mm. You could take the man who slapped you to court. You could do that instead of beating him 
you could take them to court. And that was basically defamation of character, because that's what the whole backhanded thing was. It was, it was a terrible insult. It would have been like defamation of character. It, it wasn't attempted homicide, okay? It wasn't even assault. It was essentially slander. So you could take them to court for making you look bad and embarrassing you, but just because you could didn't mean you should. The only thing that suffered in that instance was your dignity. It stung your pride. So should you be motivated by your pride and the hatred that welled up inside of you over the insult and be so offended that you drag someone to court over it? Or worse, that you, you beat the tar out of them? Turn the other cheek also, that's what Jesus says. What that means for us is get over yourself. Get over yourself. You know, Jesus here isn't teaching about self-defense. It's about getting over yourself and letting insults go. Your reputation is secure in Christ. Insecurity comes from unbelief. Know who you are. Know who you are. Now, a note on self-defense. This verse gets used a lot by, by pacifists. They say that Jesus is teaching we shouldn't protest or defend ourselves ever. This isn't a sermon on self-defense. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, okay? It's not a sermon on self-defense because this passage is not about self-defense. That's not what it's about. But let me just throw this out there to settle the whole Jesus taught pacifism. Jesus would be anti-gun, yada, yada, nonsense, okay? In Luke chapter 22, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples, let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Sell your cloak and buy a sword. Now we'll get into this in the next verse as a matter of fact in just a minute, but your cloak was one of your most valuable possessions. And Jesus instructs his disciples to part with it for something more useful and y'all, there's only one use for a sword. And here's another, uh, uh, another example. Um, when Jesus is slapped on the face by his accusers in John chapter 18, he doesn't turn the other cheek. He protests. The difference is he wasn't, he wasn't answering what he viewed as an insult to him. He's basically telling him, by, by hitting me like this, you're breaking the law. So he's, he's, he's standing up for, he's defending the dignity of God and his law. Now, he's God, so he could have pulled off the whole, who do you think you are? And he didn't. But he did protest. All right, now, Jesus wasn't a pacifist. He wasn't teaching Christians can't fight to defend themselves from attack. Game over. Moving on to the next verse. All right? Verse 40. If someone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak. If someone took your tunic in court, they sued you for it, give them your cloak too. So we just got done saying cloaks were a big deal to them, right? Their cloak was a big deal. It was clothing and it was bedding. Right? It'd almost be like wearing your bed with you. They used their outer garment as a sleeping bag, essentially. So it was, it was important. It was so important, in fact, that according to their law, you could not be sued for your cloak. You can't sue a man for his bed. <laughs> you could sue him for the tunic, the inner garment, but not the outer one. So Jesus says, surprise them. 
give them the thing they have no right to ask for. Jesus is showing his followers that instead of standing up for their legal rights so quickly, stand out for the kingdom of God. Where someone else's sin abounds, your grace to them abounds all the more because that's what it's like between you and Jesus. Have a right view of yourself. That insecurity that drives us to retaliate comes from unbelief. Believe what God says about you is true and that his promises to you are true. There's security there. All right, verse 41. If anyone forces to go with you a mile, go with them too. It amuses me they had the imperial system then. They didn't know what a mile was. But it's, it's just something you have to do in translations. It doesn't change the meaning whatsoever. It just does give the English reader some languages of measures of distance that are familiar to us so that we understand what's going on. What Jesus is referring to here is the right of Roman soldiers at this time to temporarily enlist someone to carry a load for them 1,000 paces. You, you think about uh, Jesus' crucifixion, Right? The Roman soldiers pull over Simon of Cyrene and have him carry the cross to Golgotha. That's, that's what's going on. That's, that, that's them enforcing that. And they used it pretty liberally. And they just kind of like took that and ran with it. Someone gave them an inch and they took a mile. <laughs> and you can imagine what it would have been like to have been a Jew at this time who was already salty about being subjugated to the authority of Rome. And you can imagine the humiliation you'd feel having to stop what you were doing as if it weren't anywhere nearly as important as the sack that the soldier wanted you to carry. To stop what you were doing, walk with him a mile, and then have to double back to where you started in the first place and go about the rest of your day. That's what was happening, and that's what Jesus is referring to. He's essentially saying, you can demonstrate that you have a higher authority than even the Roman emperor by doing the unexpected. By voluntarily doing what they cannot ask you to do. They have no right. Wouldn't they at least be tempted to ask you why? Wouldn't you have something remarkable to tell them? Is that not infinitely more important than your personal rights? Your peculiarness, Christian, is a tremendous asset to the furthering of the kingdom of God. You're supposed to be different. And your difference is telling. The way that you conduct yourself when your dignity is under attack should look very different than the world's. People should wonder how it is that nothing seems to get to you. And when it does, because it will, when it does, you just react differently. It's puzzling. And when you do, when you react differently than the world might expect you to react, it's because you have a right view of yourself, not too high a view. And you have a reasonable expectation of other people who are sinners just like you and who are in desperate need of the grace and mercy that you have received. 
Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's interesting Jesus finishes this section with this. If someone begs from you, give and do not refuse to lend someone. This is either a major shift from where he's been. You know, he's either going in a different direction entirely or this is a capstone to everything he said previously. Which do you think it is? He's either on to a new idea or he's putting a finer point on the one he's already been talking about. So what has he been talking about? What's he addressing? Our hearts, yes, but specifically our view of ourselves and our rights. He closes this piece addressing our tendency to hold on to what is mine, the stuff that I have a right to. Why should I have to let someone else borrow what is mine? You know, get your own. Why should I have to do without? There was no law forcing them to give to a beggar, but Jesus wraps up this section about standing on your rights with this idea that, yeah, it's not required, but considering what you know, considering what you've been shown and what you've been taught, we should live lifestyles of grace. Amen? There is no law against the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. And love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13. When we stand out by not being so quick to take advantage everywhere that we can, we demonstrate our allegiance to a higher king, and we demonstrate our independence of our worldly privileges. That's not to say that we're not entitled to our privileges. It's just that we should not view them as ultimate, and we should consider, here it is, y'all, perk up, okay, if I'm losing you. We should consider our privileges that, that, that are given to us and not view them as ultimate. We should consider how to exercise them wisely. Here's what I mean. Considering how to exercise these privileges, when and how and with whom. Do you see? So it's not to say it's all out the window and you just, you just pretend like you have no rights at all. It's just how far do you go and why? When, where, why, and with whom. That matters. You know, it's a wisdom thing. You know, ask God for some insight to, to, to intervene in there and to help you work out how far you should go with certain people. That's a wisdom thing. You need to be thinking people. Those questions matter because we, we should be considering the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. That's the point. Because that's what the Pharisees were guilty of doing, wasn't it? Following the letter of the law, throwing the spirit of the law out the, out the window. We need to be careful to consider the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. What's on paper, what's right on paper isn't always right in the heart. I remember the first car accident I was ever in. I was 16 and only had my license a short time and I'd gotten into the turning lane, getting ready to turn left at a light, and, and some, some old man just decided to join me in the turning lane, <laughs> and he just ran into me. And both cars were fine, so, you know, the responsible thing to do, and if y'all don't know this, I'm going to tell you right now, okay, move your car. <laughs> don't hold up traffic. If you can move the car, move the car. So that's what we did. Both cars could drive, and so we pulled into a parking lot nearby. We called the police, okay? But because we had moved the cars... It was inconclusive who was at fault. So the police didn't cite anyone. 
and our, our own insurance companies had to take care of the stuff, right? I'm 16. Who do you think my parents thought was at fault? It was a hard sell. <laughs> so, like, the, the shame and the embarrassment of, like, that's all just coming down on me now. Like, I'm a stupid idiot teenage driver that's now just driving up their insurance rates. In big trouble. Got to figure out how to pay for all this. It was rough. I was, I was upset about it. A week or so goes by. The old man's insurance company calls saying that he has insisted that his insurance company pay for my repairs because it was his fault. So not only was that a huge relief financially, I was vindicated. <laughs> the truth finally came out. All the shame and the insecurity I felt knowing that I was being falsely accused, not by the police, but by my parents, the old man's grace and integrity freed me from. That guy could have gone by the letter of the law and let himself off the hook, but he didn't. That says a lot about who he was. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if he was a Christian. So it's about the self again, right? Who are you? Have a right view of yourself. Treating others as you would have them treat you, which we'll actually get into a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, does this mean, going back to verse 42 here, about giving to the beggar and the one who wants to borrow from you, does this mean that you need to give to every beggar who comes asking you for money? That's a great question. You know the answer? Have a right view of yourself. That's where you start. Many of you know I have an appreciation for C.S. Lewis. I like stories about him, stories that he's written and stories about him. And here's one of those stories. One day, Lewis and a friend of his are walking down the street when uh, somebody comes up to them begging change. And his friend sort of ignores the man and, and keeps walking. Lewis stops, gets out his wallet, and gives the guy everything in it. And then as they keep walking, he and his friend, his friend's like, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Why would you give him all your money like that? Don't you know that he's just going to squander all that on ale? C.S. Lewis stops for a minute and thinks. He goes, that's all I was going to do with it. <laughs> it's about seeing the other person as a person. It's about seeing them as a human being made in the image of God just like you. Not a piece of trash to look down on and feel superior to. Consider yourself. Have a right view of yourself. It's a wisdom issue again, right? But sometimes I think we're quick to assume someone begging for money is just going to use it on drugs or alcohol and that it's not really going to help them at all. It actually hurt them. You don't know that. Not in every case. What you do know is that if you were in that situation, you would hope that someone in that sea of people who are better off than you would at least give you the benefit of the doubt. 
So I'm not saying you should empty your wallet for every person who asks you for money. What I am saying is don't sit so high on your horse. Sometimes it's appropriate to welcome the interruption and have an unexpected lunch with an unlikely friend. You can find out pretty quickly what they're really after. You know, if you invite them to lunch instead of giving them money and they turn you down, well, that settles it. But either way, you would have stood out. There's something about that that would communicate something to them that they probably don't see in other people. And how could they? Unfortunately, sometimes people misunderstand Jesus' teaching here in these verses, and they think that he's, what, he's, what he's saying is the Christian life is about being a doormat. Let yourself be abused, you know, because we're called to suffer. That's not what this means. We have to take what Jesus is saying in context here. And the reality is there are laws that have been given by God to protect people. To laws to uphold justice, to punish evil, and to protect the innocent. Where else have we gone through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has said that these laws he's pointing to are null and void? Nowhere, right? So we can't assume he's overthrowing these now and saying, y'all, the real authentic Christian life is one with no rights and no protections whatsoever. What Jesus is doing is showing them how they've taken a good thing, how they've twisted it, and how they've used it selfishly, how they've taken something that was intended to help people love their neighbor, and they've used it to hate and hurt their neighbor and to justify their petty litigiousness and their cruelty and selfishness. That's the difference. In closing here, I want to challenge you this week. There's going to be a time to put this principle into practice. And it's coming to a situation near you soon. You might not make it through the day today. You might not make it home today before the opportunity presents itself. Be on the lookout for it. That's what I'm asking you to do. Here's what it's going to look like. Okay? Someone being rude to you without cause Someone being rude to you without cause. Y'all, we're so used to this, we miss these opportunities. All I'm trying to do is have you dial it in a little bit so it rings in a little clearer, so you can recognize it when it comes, okay? Someone being rude to you without cause, someone trying their best to get under your skin, someone accusing you of doing, thinking, or saying the wrong thing. Sometime in the near future, your rights are going to get stepped on, and your natural inclination will be to retaliate to hit back, and to hit back harder. We're Christians, we don't do crystal balls, we don't do uh, you know, fortune tellers and all that kind of stuff, but one thing we do understand well is human nature, and I'm telling you this is coming, okay? So I want you to look out for this opportunity, and instead of reacting, try reflecting. You got me? Instead of reacting, that's easy, it's what we do by default. Instead of reacting, try reflecting. Have a right view of yourself and remember who you are and whose you are. See if it makes a difference. Just see. I mean, why not? What do you have to lose? Can't hurt anything but your pride. And the rest of that needs to die anyway. 
Do you think God could do something with that in your relationships? You think he could move in ways, you know, I think we're all convinced that God's only going to move in the ways that we intend for him to, right? When I put my, all right, here, I'm going to go in, I'm going to do this good thing to see if God will do, no, that's not the way he works. Just be faithful. He works in some of the smallest and most surprising ways. Just because you think effort in a particular area isn't going to produce any fruit doesn't mean that it won't. He works when and how he wills. So this is a simple little little jewel of, of faithfulness here. Being faithful in the small things. Do you think he could do something with it? Particularly with unbelievers. You know, the grocery store, the post office, whatever. You think he could use that to get people to maybe lean in just a little bit and, and, and at least wonder why you aren't like other people? It's not because you're special, right? It's because Jesus is and God is making you more into his image every day. That's what they need to see. This is a way that people can see that. So give it a shot. Deal? Give it a shot. Report back next week. And then we'll, we'll, get in, we'll make it real tricky. We'll get into where Jesus talks about loving your enemies. Tall order. Start small, shall we? Let's pray. God, we so appreciate your word and the help of your Holy Spirit to understand it. Help us, as we often ask, to be doers of your word and not just hearers of it. Help us to see ourselves as we are and to rest in the security that you have given us in Jesus. Help us to believe your promises, and may our belief in your promises produce fruit in our lives that brings you glory and brings many more sons and daughters into glory with us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.